This is the Voicing Creativity Podcast, Voicing Creative Research. I'm Shannon Vickers, professor in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Winnipeg, where I teach somatic approaches to voice and performance and engage in interdisciplinary arts-based research. This first season of the Voicing Creativity Podcast focuses on voicing creative research. Each episode showcases the prolific and inspiring work of some of Canada's leaders across the humanities, highlighting their creativity in research, pedagogy, and artistic practice. Today's episode features Dr. Orly Lael Netzer. Dr. Orly Lael Netzer is an instructor at Carleton University School of Indigenous and Canadian Studies. She works at the intersection of autobiography scholarship, research on cultural memory, and Canadian studies. Her research explores the ethics of bearing witness to creative forms of testimony in literature and art, with particular focus on the ways that testimonies' colonial legacies and trajectories shape contemporary practices of mediation and reception. Thank you so much for being here on the Voice and Creativity podcast. It's a delight to see you again. Um, I was wondering if we could start out by having you introduce yourself and then maybe we can tell the listeners how we first met, which wasn't that long ago, and our shared history before we move into some of your wildly creative and innovative research. Oh, thank you. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm a literary scholar in my training. Uh, I have a PhD in, in literature, in English literature, actually. And my research focuses on testimony, creative forms of testimony in literature and art, and readers' responsibilities to these testimonial texts. So basically, um, creative forms of testimony or literary and art-based testimonies are stories of protest where the testifying party sort of shares a true story of discrimination, dispossession, abuse, and uses their power of truth-telling and the personal voice to demand recognition of their claim and to kind of demand social political change. And I essentially ask in my work, how can readers, how can audiences honor a work of testimony and its demands for change? And my attention to readers is, or to audiences more widely, actually, is um, to think about the ways that different types of audiences, so not just the scholar reader or not just the person purchasing the book at the bookstore or not just the student who's been assigned this, this text in a classroom, but rather how do editors, publishers, cultural workers more widely as audiences, as readers, are mediating the work of testimony and are sort of sharing the responsibilities to it. So I'm looking both at, um, you know, the audiences who are receiving the work, but also the ones who are engaging with it and affecting its reception based on the ways that it's mediated. So that come into contact with the book or with the art project or with the performance at different stages. Of, um, of its production and its circulation and thinking about how all of that shapes the ways we bear our responsibilities to testimony. Yeah, so that's kind of a little bit about me. Um, I did my PhD at the University of Alberta and I'm now joining Carleton's um, School of Indigenous and Canadian Studies 
And yeah, that's kind of where, where I'm at with my work. Congratulations. Thank you. They're so lucky to have you there. Oh, I'm very excited to join them on it. Like truly, it's it's a really exciting shift. And U of A has been, U of Alberta has been a good um, place to be trained and to, to have this project grow. And yeah, I'm excited for what's next. And yeah. we met because of the life writing group that um, yes. I'll, I'll send a shout out to my colleague, Professor Candida Rifkind at the University of Winnipeg, who generously introduced me to yourself and also to Julie Rack. Um, and you both immediately and generously embraced me and brought me into your life writing group. And, you know, it was just a really beautiful place to be during the pandemic for connection, for discourse around creative work, around storytelling, about sharing stories. And I can't thank you both enough um, for that that time. And I just wondered, how did that life writing group begin? And what was yeah. what was it like before I sort of yeah, popped in? Um, yeah. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for for like saying all of this. And yes, definitely shout out to the brilliant Candida Rifkind. Um, and so it's interesting because the idea for what we call virtual coffee um, actually came up before COVID. So uh, when Julie approached me with this idea, she had the idea, Julie Rack had the idea to create this virtual gathering space for scholars who are working on life writing in Canada. Um, and so people who are working in different disciplines, but whose work is invested in life stories in different forms. Um, and a place to bring together to have a casual conversation about research. Uh, because so many of us work in institutions where there aren't many, many other people around us who are working on these, um, on these topics and issues and questions. And so it was a good opportunity to kind of bring everyone together, share research, talk a little bit about what we're doing, share some of the challenges, um, and also have a, a good sense of community. And we started, I think our first one was in January, 2020. So oh, wow. when Julie had originally approached me about this, uh, I was still a student at the time. I was near the end of my PhD and she was like, would you like to jump on this and help me, help me set it up? And I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds amazing. And I'd be more than happy <laughs> to do that. And so we, we got it started together. Um, and yeah, we started, we first talked about it. I think it was like, summer of 2019 so far before any of us have been thinking about pandemic wow. no one knew what zoom was <laughs> and so we had to really like even send these these um these like links and explanations and how do you log on zoom and download zoom and all these things and and we started it and two or three months into it all of a sudden boom pandemic wow but it's been a fun gathering space. And I think in the pandemic, it shifted in what it had become from what we had originally thought it would be. But it was almost serendipitous how like that space was already set up for us to have a continued sense of community and to have a continued sort of, it was almost like the space where, because it existed before COVID in this virtual way, it didn't have to transition because of COVID. It no. wasn't a response to COVID. And so it was almost like that was a space that was free of oh. all of those um, adjustments and all of that anxiety. And it was a space to share and continue to think about research, even when 
life has thrown a lot of curveball curveballs at all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love what you just said about that being a space for freedom and connection and sharing ideas. You know, I have said in the past at that life rating group that my field kind of went on a almost a two year pause. And so to be suddenly in this space with such generous souls um, sharing their expertise, their absolute brilliance, I just felt so lucky, even though I thought, you know, I'm not sure what I can, can contribute other than my enthusiasm because I don't come from a field of life writing. But now I'm so inspired about life writing. You all have captured my imagination. Um, with your discussions on pedagogy and research. Um, and I wondered, you know, how did you, how did you get that original spark to begin a PhD in life writing? What was it for you that sort of set you off on that path? Oh, I didn't begin a PhD in life writing. I uh, hardly even, like, I didn't even have the term life writing or know that autobiography studies was a field before I, before I started my PhD. Tell, yeah. tell me then how you moved from this broader area to this sort of testimony and life writing. What was it that sparked? It was, I think, the right place at the right time. So when I, when I came to do my PhD, um, in my first year here, um, it was the, the year that the TRC, um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, on um, residential schools in Canada, was hosted in Edmonton. Mm. And the experience of attending the TRC and attending the TRC events, and there were events around campus and courses um, throughout that year on mm. that. Uh, and I was not familiar with the history of residential schools in Canada before moving to Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sparked a lot of thinking for me. Um, as a person whose grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sparked a lot of thinking about testimony for me because I grew up in a household where people testified on that mm-hmm. on their experiences. And so, and I've heard that not just from my grandparents, but even more widely. So it was very much in my in my circle growing mm-hmm. up. And being here, having my first year here during the time when it seemed like campus and so much of the social and cultural events in in Edmonton during that year were around the TRC and and learning through testimony about these histories through, Mm -hmm. through testimony about a history I was unaware of before. That was an experience that shifted shifted my thinking and made me ask questions because one of the things that really caught my attention was the way that artists and writers had responded to the TRC and had um, had created in relation to this whole moment of discourse that was shaping up and so it took me actually a good two more years of continuing with my original project and actually like getting quite quite ahead with it until I said, no, I can't sustain both of these interests at once because I kept working on the, on the project I originally had. But mm-hmm. actually at the same time, I kept like reading and writing and thinking about this like other question that wasn't leaving my mind. And I was mm-hmm. at that point um, 
I came to the person who was my, my supervisor then. And I was like, listen, I think, I think my work is taking a turn and they were wonderfully supportive and said, okay, here's what, here's what I propose we do. Take a couple of weeks, Mm -hmm. think about five different ways to shape this idea that you have in your head. We meet in two weeks. You tell me what you want to do. And that single yet creative task um, and, and that timeline kind of forced me to be like, okay, okay. I have this idea that's been running in my head for a bit, a bit over two years at this point. Mm-hmm. What do I do with that? How do I, and like, I came up with like a version that was like a different methodology, a version that was with a slightly different question, a version that was like with different case studies, one that wasn't even focused on Canada, but asked a wider, like different, different versions of the same nebulous project that I had in my mind. Two weeks later, I was, I came back to them and I was like, here's the idea. Here's the question here's what I want to do. And they were like, okay, then you go do that. I won't be the person to take you through this because I have no idea about any of this, but let's find you someone who does. And, uh, and, oh, wow. and that's, when I came, that's when I came to Julie. Wow. Um, and I was like, Hey, Julie. And funny enough, I had already at that point, I had done, quite extensive research in life writing because I kept being interested in questions around life writing. So even though my project wasn't life writing, I was still doing life writing. I was still going to conferences because I had found this amazing community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, okay. And when I came to Julie, she was like, oh yeah, it's about time. What took you so long? <laughs> so, so yeah. Yeah. Cause the life writing community I met I met the community almost by chance, kind of similar to what you had, where when I took Julie's course, she was like, okay, I'm organizing, I'm co-organizing this conference in Banff. It's the the International Autobiography Association. And I need a couple of students who are looking for a summer job and who would like be able to help on the ground. And so, yeah. By the end of that conference, I did not present in that conference. I didn't know who was who. I had read some works through Julie's course before then. And I was in Banff for those four or five days that basically blew my mind. And I was hooked by the end of it. (laughs) And three months later, I, I was still in contact with two folks who were at the time grad students like me, Maria Faini and Emma McGuire. So Maria at the time was a grad student at Berkeley and um, Emma was a grad student at Flinders in Australia, which has a strong life writing center. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the summer, Maria kind of contacts the both of us saying, listen, I've been toying with this idea of creating a grad student and early career network for folks who are doing life writing work. And I think you might be the folks that I'd like to do it with. How great. So, yeah. So all these things kind of happened. Like I said, the right place at the right time. I came to this place, not even knowing about any of these 
communities or histories, but in some ways they're things that I've been carrying with me long before mm-hmm. coming here. And in other ways, like I needed this new perspective for things to click and for to, the time to process a lot of it as well. There's a 2017 article that you had written called Collaboration. It was written with your colleagues, Maria Faney and Emma McGuire, who you mentioned. And you mentioned that in your work, focused on testimony and situated at the intersection of transnational, indigenous, and settler perspectives, that you see life narrative studies as an interdisciplinary site for anti-colonial, critical race, and feminist work that engages with cross-cultural relationships to unsettle notions of citizenship and national belonging. Now more than ever, our field is called upon to consider collaboration as the pivotal category that shapes lived experiences. And then you went on to say that working together as a strategy of resistance is something that can be done within the neoliberal academy. And it really sparked my imagination because I see uh, similar um, sentiments being expressed in my field in theater and performance. So I sense that we're all heading in the humanities in similar directions. It's exciting. Um, I feel like you've touched a bit on that already with um, you know, our conversation, but what, is there anything you'd like to add about collaboration and um, these possibilities for disruption for... Yeah. Yeah, please. So I've come to think about, okay, working with Emma and Maria, um, who are both like, it's Dr. Maria Faini and Dr. Emma McGuire now. Yes, please. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's wonderful. But working with them was such a remarkable experience because we we weren't friends beforehand like we met at the conference and three months later we started working together and our friendship was built through our collaboration and it was built through our work together and our shared interests and so it's not like we came as this ready-made group but rather we realized that we're interested in in the same areas and the same questions and that we all were looking for a sense of community mm-hmm. um, within academia, especially as, as grad students within academia. And mm-hmm. we just we just went for it and, and started this this network and, and did that. But throughout the years, because we started that in 2014, and what at this point it's been eight years, and we have long sort of um, passed the baton of the network to other people who are now um, spearheading it and, and taking it forward. But since starting this kind of collaborative work back in 2014 and, and continuing to do this in different forms um, since then, for example, I'm actually working a different project that I'm working on. And as you can see, I'm the the expansive type of, of scholar, right? I'm working I love on multiple that. things at the same time. Yeah, um, creativity. And so it, a different project I'm working on is an edited collection on autobiography and ethics. Oh, amazing. um, Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, we're working on it now. I'm working on it with the contributors. We're preparing to submit for peer review. Um, And some of the chapters are co-authored. A lot of the chapters are thinking through creative and critical practices of working with life writing texts and what collaboration means Mm 
mm-hmm. in the context of working with people's lived experience and with mm-hmm. representing lived experience. And the, the different chapters, the, the contributors are really amazing. Uh, not all of them are actually life writing scholars. Quite a few of them are from other fields. They're artists. Um, others are cultural workers. Others are from um, anthropology who also do creative work. So it's a really interesting situation to see how people from different fields, many of whom are like you, encountering life writing studies and life writing scholarship um, pretty much in the early stages for thinking about their work. Mm-hmm. Um, coming to think about these questions, but the reason why I'm thinking about this project as I'm talking about collaboration isn't just in terms of the contents of the chapter, but also in the way that we've been working together. Mm. Um, because one of the things I've asked the contributors is to meet together as soon as we start working on the project have a couple of meetings throughout the project where we just talk about our shared ideas, our shared threads, our shared interests, um, just to think about how do we bring together this set of questions and perspectives that we're all asking about representing lived experience and representing life stories. And what really sparked me during those first couple of, of meetings was how people who are working, so out of the group, there are people who are working in disability studies. There are other people who are working in math studies and critical race studies, social who are working, who are doing social justice work. Other are poets. Like there's, it's such an interesting mix. And within a few minutes, it was very clear to us that we're all sharing the same set of interests and the same set of almost like a set of questions that we're asking. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not that we're offering different answers, but it's that we're offering a shared set of answers from different prisms Mm -hmm. or on different registers because we're each kind of working in our own little bubble. And for me, that's what that's what's exciting about life writing as a field, because it does emerge very much from literary studies. But over the last couple of decades, it has really grown into something much larger and much wider. It's no longer just thinking about the genre of autobiography mm-hmm. as a literary text, but rather thinking about it um, the way that scholars like Julie Rack or Lee Gilmore have established it as a, as a, as a discourse and thinking mm-hmm. about what does this discourse of life storytelling allows us to think in terms of not only the self or identity the way it has been traditionally so far, mm-hmm. but actually now the turn that with Maria and Emma we've noticed is to think about questions of relationality and collaboration being a part of those questions of relationality and how is life writing or how is autobiography as a discourse allowing for these questions and allowing to think through okay how does a represent how does the representation of a person of their experience and their story 
What does that actually say about our relationships with one another? The ways that we're working together in different structures, Mm -hmm. in different set structures with one another. And I think that what's interesting for me and why I particularly go into the area of testimony and thinking about questions of responsibility is to think about, okay, how does that allow for changing the structures that are limiting us, that are oppressing us, right? How does that, not just the storytelling itself, not just the act of the storytelling, but the ways that we mediate and receive those stories, how does that allow us to create cracks within the system, to challenge the systems, to see the structures, Mm-hmm. to talk about the structures in different ways. And I think some of the things that were really in terms of my own personal work and my personal research that I found so compelling is when I'm reading someone like solo poet Lee Miracle and I'm reading her mm-hmm. work on um, my conversations with Canadians, she has this like little booklet of, of essays where she writes my conversations with Canadians. And when she critiques um settlers empathy responses Mm -hmm. she's thinking about or she's writing about what happens whenever she shares her personal story Mm. or whenever indigenous people testify to experiences Mm -hmm. of residential schools or of the 60s scoop or uh, experiences with intergenerational trauma right and so even though she isn't thinking about it as life writing because she's thinking about it in terms of her critiques of settlers, her relationship with settlers as, as a Stolo woman. Mm -hmm. She's thinking about what happens whenever I'm sharing my personal story, whenever I'm sharing my personal experience, whenever I'm performing this autobiographical narrative, Mm -hmm. I come to it as a life writing scholar, seeing that and thinking, boom, Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I'm thinking about. And this is exactly why life writing as a scholarship field, it allows you this pretty open and creative perspective to think about how does cultural production shape relations mm-hmm. within community, between community? What can we do with it? What have we been doing with it? Because mm-hmm. we know historically how so many communities have been using that for protests. Mm-hmm. And Similarly enough, I have a similar situation when I pick up Sadia Hartman's writing and I read her critique of the ways that that abolition activists have been receiving and using, I'm using air quotes here for whoever cannot see me on the screen, (laughs) um, um, using with air quotes, um, the, the, the writings and the texts and the oral histories of people who've been enslaved as a form of activism for abolition. But what happens when the activists who are white, the activists who have the power, what happens when they receive those testimonies, when they receive those oral histories or written texts, and how do they respond to them? How do they engage with them? And how do they actually, in their responses, still replicate the same kinds of, of structures that enslaved people mm-hmm. have been protesting against? And so 
again, she isn't thinking about this from the perspective of a life writing scholar, right? But in the way that she's articulating the use of these texts, whether they're oral or written, published or not published, the way she's thinking about the mediation of these texts, the reception of these texts, and the social and political use of these texts, she is talking about life writing. And she's very clearly using the terms, right, lived experiences, autobiographical texts, testimonies. Mm -hmm. So I'm very careful not to put words in anyone else's mouth, but also at the same time coming to it as a life writing scholar. This is where I see what the field as a research field, but also as a creative practice allows Mm -hmm. you to do, right? And so thinking about life writing as this prism that allows you to look at things from different fields, from different both scholarly and cultural fields, Mm -hmm. to think about how are life stories moving within communities, between communities, and shaping our relationships to one another, shaping the ways that we work with one another, which is essentially collaboration, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how is that, what kind of work does that do in terms of also shaping and reimagining and, and breaking structures um, that were living in you always spark my imagination and then I go off and I, <laughs> I go off and I read more things um you know so thank you for, for that um yeah I'm just thinking about many things right now early and just uh, the future of storytelling and also just thinking about how many folks have had lived experience and may not even know that life writing is a possibility for them. They may not know that theater is a place for them to, you know, write a show and to tell their story. And so, you know, there's all sorts of folks that might want to have I think that it's interesting. Yeah, know? I think it's interesting because especially because like, you know, we we live in a culture that's very autobiographical. Like we live in a cultural moment where every day through social media, we are recording our personal experience or representing it in a particular way, curating it in a particular way. So a lot Mm -hmm. of these things that we've come to think about through memoir, we've, we've, all of us have been doing for the last two decades (laughs) daily. Yes. Yeah. Um, and in multiple locations. <laughs> yes, exactly. In multiple locations and, and on different platforms and on different mediums. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of us are also, um, especially if I'm thinking about like, you know, particular pivotal cultural moments over the last few years with COVID, with mm-hmm. the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. um, moments where life stories online have been mobilized in very particular ways, especially, I always think of it through the prism of testimony, right? Because that's the little track that I'm constantly on. Yeah, but I appreciate a that. A lot of us are doing are doing life writing every time, right? I mean, I, I often tell my students, when you share your your story with a professor, you're doing life writing. When you tell your friends, 
what is up with like your classes and your university studies, you're doing life writing. All of these are practices of personal storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think also there's such a plethora of creative community workshops on telling your story. Right. Absolutely. And we have a lot of that happening. And we have a lot of like, you know, even improv situations where mm-hmm. people are are using improv theater yes. to tell their personal experiences. Yes. Um and we have clowning. like even yeah, as yeah, yeah, as a cult culturally around the world, we have so many different settings where mm-hmm. we are doing personal storytelling and we have for thousands of years right some of these mediums are new but Mm -hmm. these storytelling circles are nothing new right sharing your personal story like all of that we all grow up in societies that have different cultural settings and and have been for for thousands of years different cultural settings that offer sites for personal storytelling what's shaping differently i think in this particular moment is the ways that because of how quickly everything moves around the world right now Mm -hmm. the ways that we receive things and the kinds of responsibilities that are asked from us are in a moment of flux and in a moment of reshaping and how we can, how we're able to respond to them is also in a moment of reshaping. And I think that that's where, as a field of research, as a field of creative practice, it's a really, really interesting interesting site to be, to be a part of right now. Yeah. Um, and as a field, I also think it's interesting that it is... It has shaped through feminist work. It has mm-hmm. shaped through post-colonial work. So it it has emerged in the last 30, 40 years as a field of study that is often in interest in looking at the structures and looking at relationships and mm-hmm. looking at questions of responsibility. And that's where a lot of like the kernel of that work of opening it up from this very particular literary form because you know autobiography as a literary form was only it, it was only allowed for very few of us right absolutely who got to tell their stories yeah exactly or more i think more accurately who got to publish their stories mm-hmm. who got to have their stories read mm-hmm. right and how did that shape all of us all of get to lives. tell that story. exactly yeah and how does that shape the way we think Mm-hmm. about what identity is absolutely what subjectivity is mm-hmm. what what persona even means right absolutely and what, and what all these different um what authenticity whatever that word um, <laughs> speaks to means yeah <laughs> it yeah. seems to mean different things in different contexts yeah for sure yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. in different fields so in your um, one of your more recent um, articles, you actually highlighted that you feel that the field is heading to incorporate more trauma-based um, t- 
texts, I think uh, I've got a little quote here, trauma remains a key interest in autobiography studies. I always hear if one person shares their story, others are supported to come forward. And I see that that's sort of happening and I'm excited about it. I wondered if you could speak to that with your expertise. Sure. Um, I always have one caveat to that, to that statement of if someone shares their story, others will feel compelled to come forward. It's always with the condition that that someone isn't shut down. Absolutely. When, when they're telling the story, it's always with the, we need to remember that it's with the condition of how is that single story then received? Absolutely. And whether it's shut down by everyone else in the room. So when we made that statement, it's actually in, in part of the 2017 work that um, Maria Faini and Emma McGuire and I um, wrote and edited. So just to kind of frame, it was the 40th, the 40th um, anniversary of AB Autobiography Studies, a journal um, in the field of, of autobiography studies. And what the editors wanted to do was a sort of what's next edition. What, what are the futures of, of the field? And as part of that, they had invited us, uh, Maria, Emma, and myself to edit a forum of um, brief contributions by emerging life writing scholars um, talking about what they see as the future directions. And when we made that statement of trauma remaining a key interest in autobiography studies, that was actually in response to all of the essays that we were reading because we had... Mm. We had edited over 20 uh, contributions for that um, for that forum, and we also read the other contributions in the special issue. Everything was in very short form just to allow it to, to, to spark inspiration. Um, and we noticed that the interest in trauma had two levels to it, the continued interest, because it's not necessarily a new interest that emerges now or that has emerged in 2017 when we published it, but rather it's something that was part of the field of life writing studies um, over the past several decades. Mm. Um, and it has been on two levels that you, that you see that both, I think, in the field of life writing studies as a research field, but also more widely culturally, and we can talk about that in a sec, but in the field, it has two levels. One is thinking about how is the autobiographical act, so the act of writing, the act of acting, the act of creating the documentary, the act of creating the artistic work, how does this practice and this act process trauma, represent trauma, allow to work through trauma, allow to work with trauma, all those elements that are part of the individual and their personal experience and how that is then processed and brought onto or into the creative uh, text or work. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And part of that Part of research on that is also in terms of embodiment and thinking about embodied practices um, of Mm. autobiographical creation. Mm. The other side of that is 
the societal fascination or the societal moment of trauma, mm-hmm. right? And the circulation and reception of, of, of stories of trauma and how those are consumed uh, by audiences. And part of that has to do, um, I'm going to think more recently now, so probably in the last 20 years rather than earlier than that. Please. But in the last 20 years, and I'm not saying here that this is a shift, this is just the, the period of time that I'm focusing on in, in my in my next couple of minutes. So part of that has to do with what Julie Rack has actually called the memoir boom. Mm. Um, she said it back in 2015, but she's actually looking at the, the turn of the century and the turn to nonfiction and the turn particularly to the genre of memoir and mm. how memoir allows um, or invites audiences into what are very private, often hidden, sometimes even scandalous mm-hmm. experiences and truths. And the memoir offers a site to share those mm-hmm. um, and to also have a glimpse at those, right? The, the voyeur kind of um, moment that you're able to view someone else's very secretive experiences and, and, and what, or what we don't see publicly, the private sides mm-hmm. of a person's experience because if autobiography as a literary genre is very much about the person's public image their accomplishments their achievements the genre of memoir though both of them are extremely personal and self-narrated and all of that and very much about identity and very much about the self the memoir is much more about these very private parts these very non-public um, personal sides of a person's experience. And so having that market shift, like all of a sudden memoirs becoming this huge literary market mm-hmm. also creates a cultural or reflects a cultural shift. And memoirs do offer more room for the representation of trauma. And this is me making a huge, gross generalization right now. Okay. So like, I want to say thank you for doing don't, that. Don't though. set me on that, but but yeah. As, as someone outside of the field, I really appreciate the time and detailed thinking through that you're doing with various terms today. I cannot thank you enough because I'm so eager to learn about this and I hope the listeners are as well. And it's just great to have a sense of the landscape of the field and what each thing is. So thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, and actually for, for those of you who are interested and like, just don't want to get into the field and don't know how a good starting point is a book that was edited. It was edited some time ago now. Uh, no, it was co-authored, sorry, not edited, co-authored by, um, Sydney Smith and Julia Watson. It's called reading autobiography and, um, and yeah, it's a, it's a really good sort of starting point um, if you're if you're a scholar um, for for students or for more general audiences. Um, I'll um, send Shannon a couple of links afterwards um, for great. books that you can that you can read and kind of get a a better sense if you're more interested. But yeah, yeah. we'll put all this on the show notes. <laughs> yeah, awesome, Thank awesome, you. Um, and so. Going back to your question about trauma. Thank you. 
I think what's interesting is the ways that what's different about life writing or about personal storytelling or about personal art, right? Um, or autobiographical art is that there are two core parts to it. One is the understanding that it's a true story. Okay. Mm -hmm. Two, it's the understanding that it's lived experience, lived or experiential or embodied knowledge. Mm -hmm. We often tend to think of the first rather than the latter. We often tend to think about the truth value of it and kind of sideline the fact that this is also a form of knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah. And the way that we think about it culturally or the way that life stories have been circulating culturally and we've been thinking about them. And I'm going back here to the question of can sharing a traumatic experience shift something in the room, shift something for audiences? How can it? Where could it fail? And so the part where it's true, that's part of the contract between us. And, and scholar Philippe Lejeune actually talks about it as the autobiographical pact, this, this sort of unwritten agreement between mm -hmm. the writer, the narrator, and the reader that the voice that you're reading is actually the voice of a real person in the real world representing an actual experience. And mm -hmm. that's the pact, the understanding with which we go into an autobiographical text when we pick up a memoir or when we pick up an autobiography and read it. But the part about this, this being experiential knowledge, this being a form not only of truth-telling but of knowledge sharing mm -hmm. requires from the reader more than just recognizing this as true, mm -hmm. right? It requires you to recognize this form of knowledge. It requires you to recognize the form that it is sort of being communicated in and as well as what it is saying. So it requires you to engage with, with the autobiographical act, with the creative act in a much more complex and layered way. And very often what happens, and I write about this quite a bit in my work, both in the article that you mentioned a little earlier about material weapons mm -hmm. um, that came out in 2021 and, and another article that I published in 2019, which is called a VR empathy machine. Yes. Um, what often happens when we respond to, or when we, when we receive a life writing text in whatever form that shares a traumatic experience or that represents a traumatic experience, where, whether that is an individual traumatic experience or a collective one. There are a few pitfalls to it. One is one that's been written very extensively about, and it's this over-identification. Mm. It's the one where I've, I've been through this. I know mm. this. This is like this and this part of my life. This is like that and that part of my life. La, la, la. And so we we literally sort of transport ourselves to becoming the person mm. uh, or, or making them into us. 
mm-hmm. right? And and so many scholars have written about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's true. Like if you look at it from the perspective of a lot of um, documentary writers have, uh, like cre- documentary artists and scholars who study documentary film have been writing about it. Um, scholars of testimony have been writing about it extensively. Life writing scholars have been writing about it. And then there's there's the other type of response, the empathy response, which mm-hmm. is I put myself in your shoes. Once again, I'm going to use air quotes. Yeah. Uh, with put myself in your shoes. And I don't necessarily create the over-identification, but I'm just going to feel bad mm-hmm. that this happened to you. I'm so sorry this happened. I'm glad you're now better because you're telling me the story. You're mm-hmm. able to articulate it. I'm going to cry for a little bit, be mm-hmm. sad for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then feel really good about myself because I felt <laughs> empathic and because I felt sad. Yeah. Right? And that's a response that we often think is an okay response. And that we actually, culturally, like often promote we want our students to feel empathy when they're reading a text, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We want viewers to feel empathy when they're watching a play or watching a movie. We, we want audiences to, to, to feel empathic when they are going through the Human Rights Museum. Mm-hmm. But does that, actu- does that empathy actually respect the truth and knowledge that are being shared and does that empathy actually achieve what the author would like audiences to receive what if the author wants them to be really freaking angry it's <laughs> a or, really good question right or yeah. repulsed or like why yeah. why is this very particular affect Mm-hmm. And very particular embodied knowledge. Yes. The one that we privilege and the one that we often see as this right response. Now, empathy, like, I don't want to make this about empathy. I want to go back to trauma here. There is the assumption or the thinking that. Audiences' empathic response is what would lead to sharing more traumatic stories and that sharing more traumatic stories leads to healing and change. Like we often have this, this almost like a um, like process chart in our head mm-hmm. yeah. of one leads to the other, leads to mm-hmm. the third, boom, problem solved. Mm-hmm. Not quite. Right? I mean, take Me Too, for example. Right? One story led to more stories, led to a global outpour of stories. Right? Mm -hmm. Led to this huge cultural moment of a lot of empathy. 
Mm-hmm. And anger and a bunch of other affective responses, right? Yes. Has that flow chart <laughs> actually changed everything? I think it's much more complex and much more layered and, and requires much more nuance and engagement and constant return to both the acts of telling and to the acts of listening and how mm-hmm. do we how do we practice them it's fascinating this has been this has been amazing <laughs> you know i just uh, everything that you've shared today you know my mind is thinking about theater and the overlap with voice and the overlap mm-hmm. with performance and um, you're, you've just been so wonderfully generous with all of your knowledge and all the Thank various you. avenues in your field that I think if anybody's listening from my field, they might think, wow, you know, that's, we're doing things in similar ways, um, right down yeah. to the consent, right down to the refusal, right down to, we have, you know, consent practices now around intimacy and mm-hmm. our, our field is really, um, you know, giving giving a lot of thought to that and a lot of discourse so um it's fascinating to hear what's happening in your field and um and I'd love to know more about your field but maybe that's for another conversation I would love to hang out yeah 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 is there anything that you want to share before we go um yeah like I think the only thing is people often think of this field as a very literary one don't be, don't shy away from it just because it seems like from, from out of your field. Um, and it, it is a very generous community of scholars. So yeah, if oh, you're yeah. interested, um, you can feel free to drop me a line and <laughs> you can also feel free to, to, to start reading. Um, and yeah, and thank you, Shannon, for having me over. Thank you. I wish you lived down the street. We could just hang out. <laughs> right? Yeah. I hope yeah. I hope to see you in, yeah. in real life, as the kids say, IRL. Mm-hmm. All the best yeah. with um, your position and the year Thank ahead. You. And uh, yeah, you. we'll put all of that information in the show notes, um, contact yeah. info and everything. And thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you all for listening. Yes. Thank you, dear listeners. If you want to learn more about any of the resources we spoke about in this episode, please check out our show notes on voicingcreativity.com, where you can also email or send us a voice memo with your feedback at podcast at voicingcreativity.com. You can follow us at Voicing Podcast on Twitter, and you can tweet about the podcast by using the hashtag voicingcreativitypodcast. You can also rate and review this show at Apple Podcasts. The Voice and Creativity podcast was produced on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. The Voice and Creativity podcast is supported by the University of Winnipeg Research Office, the University of Winnipeg Human Research and Ethics Board, and the University of Winnipeg Faculty of Arts, and by research assistant Jordan Berkwin. A special thank you to Dave Peterson of Ross River Dana Territory. The podcast theme song is Beauty Is All by Ketza from the album Creative Center. You can download more of their work on freemusicarchive.org and from their website, ketzamusic.com. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out our other season one episodes. Thank you for listening to the Voicing Creativity podcast. Thank you.